Hello. You all set? All set. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Craft Business Life podcast. My name is Lee Solomon. This is a podcast all about actors and other artists and sometimes other people, too, but mostly actors uh, and about how they do what they do and uh, literally, uh, like the name implies, the craft side, the business side and the life side and how it all works. Um, my guest today is an actor and a writer and a teacher and a variety of things. Um, among other things, she has uh, her one-woman show that has been performed uh, several times, and the next one is coming up next weekend at The Tank here in New York City, and we'll talk all about that. That is called Simple Math. Um, anyway, Lisa Danielle Book is my guest. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. Happy to be part of it. <laughs> Thank you. So, you know, I usually start, and this is kind of the same thing, I usually start by asking in general what you're up to day-to-day -day right now and what you're focusing on. And since, obviously, this show of yours is coming up next weekend, I'm assuming that's at least a big part of <clears throat> of your answer to that. I know this show <laughs> is, is very important to you, and it's... It's a big part of your career at this point. So let's start with that. Tell us about this yeah. show, Simple Math, and what exactly the history of it is and, and what it's all about. Because I, I got the <laughs> sense even from just, you know, a little bit of talking and seeing your website and everything else about your stuff that it just, I can tell this is uh, an important part of your, of your story. So tell us about this, this Simple Math show. Yeah, well, thank you for being so perceptive and picking up on that. Um, I it's a big part of my story because it's a it's autobiographical and it actually is something that happened when I started studying acting. Mm -hmm. So it's important that way, and also now that I've turned it into something that I'm making art about and finding my finding my voice as an artist, it's really important to me. And it started. It started actually when I was in my third year of going into my third year of grad school. I didn't want to leave grad, so I went to grad school for acting. Um, I got my MFA. I graduated last May, and I wanted to leave with something that was more than just myself as a product. I said, I want to. Okay, like I know I'm going to be this like really, you know, fine-tuned actor, whatever that means, <laughs> and and. Um, but I want to leave with something else. And so I really wanted to, to write something. So I would have something to be working on if I wasn't getting, uh, if I wasn't getting jobs and just relying on auditions to like provide me that fulfillment. And I decided to try one woman show because I'd never done anything like that before. And I thought it would be a good challenge, you know, craft wise as well. And I enjoy writing. So I actually was starting to write it about Amy Winehouse. <laughs> and I had done, in the summer of 2017, I did all this research about Amy Winehouse. I read the books that her parents wrote, and I was planning on delving into making a show about her and me portraying Amy Winehouse because my uncle had said, you know, you kind of look like her. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this would be so cool, uh, really, really interesting character work. You know, delving into, and my angle was going to be trying to create understanding about what it's like to be an addict. And 
and just like her life and maybe maybe even focusing on other aspects of her life so that she's not just remembered as an addict. I didn't know. There was a variety of things I was trying. And then the fall of 2017 was happening and the Me Too movement happened. And it was like all this stuff staring me in the face. And I had already written and worked on several drafts of this Amy Winehouse piece. And then in December... I kind of had this final straw moment where I heard somebody calling in to NPR complain that they, complaining that with this resurgence of the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton thing, they had to explain to their 11-year-old what a blowjob was. And that frustrated me because parents shouldn't, I don't feel like parents should be frustrated. They have to explain to their kids what sex is because I think that there's so much childhood abuse anyway that like this is something that should be talked about. and. So out of that outrage, I said to myself, it's simple math. And all of a sudden, the framework of the first draft came to me. And I wrote the first version of it as I was going into tech for a show at school. <laughs> and so, and it was like the first time, I think that this whole, you know, this story, this autobiographical story had been sitting in me for a while. And I hadn't even planned on telling it, although I had people very close to me in my life saying, you know, you should turn this into something someday, write about it, because it's, it's a story that people need to hear. And then the framework kind of presented itself, of like presenting it as like, oh my gosh, if I could present this as a math equation and decode this for people, people would stop calling sexual assault complicated. So, so that's, that's very... History. Yeah, so that's obviously very interesting on several levels. Um, I want to hear uh, specifically, you know, what exactly that is, without giving the whole show away, obviously, but what exactly you mean by that, how you, how you present it as a math equation and why that's sort of your, your important angle. But also, uh, I don't know how much you're willing to talk about now as far as what actually happened to you. Are you willing to talk about that or no? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so if you don't mind, I know I'm sure it's tough, but tell us, if you would, uh, whatever you're willing to about what actually happened, and then we'll talk about the show. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I'll, first I'll talk about the, the, the equational aspect. Okay. Which, which is uh, skillful perpetrators have an equation to get what they want, and mm -hmm. oftentimes whether you're a child or whether you're an adult, if somebody, you know, is interested in this kind of, uh, in having uh, control or power over you in this sexual manner or whatever, or, or mentally or emotionally, there's certain things that they do, like the, there's a grooming process. And it's often, this, this kind of thing happens with someone you know rather than strangers. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it so fictitious, I guess, is that, and, um, yeah. hopefully that's the right word. <laughs> and, uh, so this was somebody that I was, was a mentor and I really looked up to as like, and, and I had a bond with, and little did I know that from the beginning I was being groomed for this. And I wasn't the only one that was being groomed like this um, for for this 
type of for this situation to happen. And it's it was uh when it was happening I was like beside myself and it and uh I didn't I didn't know there's something interesting that happens where you 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 you, de- you deny that it's happening because you don't it's so it's so surprising yeah. and people who are so skillful they catch you by surprise and you you find and like I was like denying it to myself because like no there's no way that this person I look up to is that this is happening and um and I, it's hard for me to know how much to say because like I want to save some of it for the show but uh um. But there's Oprah when I'll quote Oprah Winfrey because she talks a lot about um, abuse because she she had she like was a survivor as well and she says if the abuser is any good you won't even know or if the abuse is any good quote unquote like if they really know what they're doing you won't even know that it's happening and that's like the best way to describe this which is like I didn't really know that this was what. It, it looked like I didn't know that coercion was part of this equation and that basically creating a situation where like it's you don't even you're, you're you don't know how to say no anymore mm-hmm. is like is um is it and then but you're thinking and so I was thinking oh well I I guess I consented or or I halfway consented or I didn't really say no so I guess you know I I had a part in this like I, this was something a choice that I made, and that's what really skillful perpetrators would do is they they give you the illusion that like you have the choice, but but my but really what was happening, and this is only something I realized until wasn't something I realized until later on that this was this was co- this was coercion. Yeah, and it all in it in it and it only happens when you have develop a trust and a relationship with somebody and when you break them down I mean this was a person that was had a very old school style of acting training or you know dance training and I think that anyone who's trained can like relate a little bit to this which is like your teachers are going to be hard on you and you're going to have to like go to some really scary places and you're going to find yourself getting defensive and they're going to say don't get defensive you know and that and I'm the training when I you know I started there when I was like 2021 and I was being told okay like okay you're getting defensive you can't stop you have to stop getting defensive like you have to learn to just take the note and that over years got translated into everything I say is the word (laughs) not me um him and um it was very easy for me to just to to then uh I, I became afraid to protest anything because if I did, he retaliated. I mean, with with such intense with such intensity, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of fear that gets mixed in there. There's a lot of like, okay, well, it's it's you know, it's essentially an abusive relationship. Yeah, like when somebody when somebody you're in a relationship with. Uh, you're afraid that whether you're afraid they're going to hit you or whether they intimidate you all. All you want to do, whether it's conscious or not, is keep things safe, keep things cool, so as not to rock the boat. And you find, and that's how, you know, that's the situation I found myself in. I didn't realize that that's what I was doing. And then ultimately, when it did become sexual, I was like, well, I'm just going to do whatever doesn't rock the boat. 
And finally, when, when I, when I realized this wasn't a good thing, this isn't what I want. And I tried to, you know, you know, exercise my will and say, no, I don't want this right now. I was asked, I was questioned why. And never in my life was I ever, if I'm like turning down something sexual, uh, <laughs> was I ever questioned? And I was like, okay. But at that point, I was also so like sucked into the like uh, cycle of abuse in the relationship that I, every, like, which is basically like everything, if something went wrong, I thought it was my fault. And so when he didn't say except no for an answer, I was like, oh, there must be, there must be something wrong with me. There must be something that, yeah, he must be right. And, and that's, but that's also when I realized, oh no, this is, this is a problem. This is not normal. This isn't healthy. How do I get out of this? And even then I didn't, you know, know, I mean, it took me even like a year and a half after that after I had moved to New York to realize, to really get out of the relationship. It wasn't until like a year and a half that I was like, okay, I'm cutting off all ties and this is why. And of course he asked for like an explanation, but there was no, but I realized like there's no reasoning with somebody who's abusive like that. And you just have to cut off ties Mm -hmm. regardless of the repercussions. So uh, that was me trying to like explain like kind of the nutshell of, of the dynamic without giving too much away in the show. But yeah, in the show I go into detail of like all of the steps so that, because this isn't something that is like easy to explain in a, in like a sentence. No, of course. And, um, yeah. And so that people could see this is exactly how, this is exactly how something like this can happen. I see. Because at the time, yeah, like at the time, you know, part of what also inspired me to write something was that once the Me Too movement really uh, came in full force and there was different different articles and different stories popping up, I saw people's comments of like, well, how is this, sorry, how is this, like, how is this sexual assault? How is this, how is this not just a bad date? And I was like, wow, people really don't understand how this works. And I'm like, I found myself in a unique position of understanding exactly the dynamics of how it works and that it's more than it can be more than just a bad date when somebody's on a date with someone and they end up in a situation where the person starts pressuring them to do things they're not comfortable with and won't take no for an answer like that is not just a bad date and we and I really want to change the narrative of that and I and like I'm tired of people saying that's this mentality but that the way to empower is with knowledge. And the more people are aware of like, Hey, this, okay, this is what happens. This is what happens to your brain. When some, when like you're faced with something like this, if you're in a classroom and around a lot of people and someone comes up, you comes up to you and touches you in an inappropriate way. We'd all like to think that we would say, what the heck are you doing? Get away from me. But it's not that easy. We, what our brains do is like we go into a state of like this fight, fight, freeze response. And oftentimes we freeze. And that is where the, the sticky part is. Right. When you freeze, you go into this like playing dead mode and like other facilities shut down and all logic goes through. And you're just like, it's like this thing in the back of your brain. That's like, okay, if I stop moving and act like I'm dead, maybe they'll leave me alone. Right. 
Well, you know, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, it's, it's obviously very disturbing and, and, uh, you know, this was obviously a very depraved, uh, individual and situation. And, um, you know, I think one of the big, uh, takeaways it sounds like for people from it is, you know, we're all well aware of this stuff in the news. We're also all, you know, you know, it, it's easy to understand the, the straightforward versions of, okay. you know, where it's very clear cut. But it sounds like what you're saying is there can be some very subtle, uh, versions of it and, and that, but that can be just as, um, just as, uh, inappropriate. Um, so, yeah. you know, uh, I'm glad you're doing this show and, um, you know, uh, so, so, <laughs> sorry, I, just, I have so many things I want to ask you. I'm just trying to ask <laughs> yeah. which order to ask you. Okay. So let's stick with the, the actual, you know, content for a moment or what yeah, you would like absolutely. people and, you know, particularly women, though obviously it can happen to men too, but, um, you know, so, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, there can be some ambiguity as ambiguity, excuse me, as far as con consent and so forth, or that you may not realize till later that you were in this position where you, you said yes, but you didn't really want to or whatever. So what would you like people to realize or take away from your experience and from the show in order to avoid that happening to them, God forbid, you know, what, what, what are some of the ways people can <laughs> watch out for this sort of thing when it's not so clear cut, you know? Yeah. Oh, this is a great question. And a big reason as to why I made the show, which is, sure, you know, one, if you, one, if you've been through something like this to not, you know, blame yourself right. anymore. I mean, I've had people come, I had people come up to me who were even victims of childhood sexual abuse who it's like clear that they are clearly nobody blames children. But as we can see with the Larry Nasser, are you aware, like, are you familiar with the Larry Nasser case? Um, I the, remember, the, I remember the name, but you're going to have to remind me of the details. Yeah. So he, so he was a, um, he was a, a doctor for yes. U.S. Olymp um, uh, Olympic gymnast. Yeah, and now, yeah. And um, you know, we'd like to think that if a child says that something's happening to them, that people are going to believe them, and that they're definitely it's not their fault, and all these things. But like, there were many children, you know, many young girls that tried to come forward to their parents or to officials, and like, were not believed. And, um, then I guess my whole point of bringing that up is whether, you know, in doing this show, like I've been really fortunate to have people who came up to me who were victims of childhood sexual abuse and who, that it was cathartic for them as a reminder that like it wasn't their fault and that they felt less alone in hearing this. But, um, and so, you know, I feel like what I would want, the message I would want to give to parents who have children or that's redundant parents and um, 
and uh, and and individuals like when you are an adult and you're in a situation like this and you've never like like I was and I didn't even know the things to look for. Um, if if there are um, if there is And this is going to sound like not exacting, so I'm going to kind of talk my way through it. Um, when someone does not want, doesn't allow, when someone shuts down your instincts, mm-hmm. like if you have a question about something and they shut it, maybe they shut it down. Um, that, and that sounds so general, but like that's a sign. If, uh, in other words, and just just to just to see if I understand and maybe help clarify, you mean if like you're made to feel like you can't even ask your question or say your opinion, like you're just dismissed before it's even heard. Yeah, or if or if like someone, or if like they they argue with you, or. Um, and I, and like, we probably experience this all the time with people of like, Hey, like you don't respect my opinion. I'm seeing it and you're not even letting me speak. Um, but it's especially important. I mean, one in your interpersonal relationship to, you know, you decide for yourself, okay, do I want someone in my life like that? Do I want a boss like that? But also like, especially when you're studying something as sensitive as acting and, um, some, that it's so easy to exploit that. If, if if you are delving into something really personal and then the instructor goes outside the bounds or, or, or like, you know, uses that as an opportunity to investigate more about that thing, right. which is like this fine line. I know, um, like, oh, I noticed that in this acting exercise you were exploring this. Well, that's interesting. And, you know, it's just like, it's like... A good instructor will like not discuss it and not discuss it outside of the realm of like what the work is about. Exactly. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, like n- nobody, whether it turns sexual or not, like nobody should be yelling at you to intimidate you. You know, th- there should be no verbal abuse. And under the guise of like, well, this is this is the business. Yeah, no. You just have to get used to this. Nobody, right. nobody should be doing that to you because <laughs> it's it's like it has nothing to do with having a tough skin. And I was told that it was like you just got to develop a tough skin. I think that that's an old school way, and it, and it shuts people down. And if if you want your performers, whether they're in whether you're in a show that you're directing or you're teaching them the choreography, or they're your students, you want them to feel safe. And if someone that you are studying with or with does not make you feel safe, if they, if they're, and, that, and that's because they're yelling at you, and, and I know that, they, you know, there's people, there's sometimes these, like, you know, acting studios where, like, the teachers are yelling at them, but it's, you know, and so what I'm saying sounds like a very general statement. No. But some people, you know, they like it. Some people need that. They need that to shake them up. Right. But if other people, like if that shuts you down, you need to honor that. And that was something that after this experience, I even had to learn to say, which is to a teacher, hey, you know, because of this experience, I actually shut down when men yell at me. Right. And I like sat down at school and had it like, at my graduate school and told my teacher that one of my teachers that and he was 
so open to hearing it. And like, we talked about it and you just have to advocate for yourself and say, okay, this shuts me down and this, or no, this opens me up. And, um, if, uh, other signs to look for, if no teacher should be asked or no one should be asking like anything about like your romantic life or your sex life of like, if they, if they're asking questions without, then, then it's like, that's not, that's not appropriate. Um, especially like if you have, you know, if you're the parent of younger children and the teacher saying something like, Oh, like I want, it's important for them to, you know, to, to be here when they're going, you know, I want, I want to study with them. I want them to study with me when they're going through puberty because puberty is such, puberty is such a tough time. That's one of those things that's like, Ooh, what? Like that it can easily be glazed that's, over. That doesn't make sense. And I, use, yeah. wow. and I use that as like a specific example. Sure. Of like, that's a direct quote. <laughs> wow. Which, well, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. So I feel like my, I feel like my, what are the signs to look for? It's like, they're kind of everywhere right now. It's, <laughs> um, I feel like I'm not giving like a very clear, no, you absolutely, no, you absolutely are. And again, we're talking about a very specific context of acting training where it can be easy to disguise these things or blur the lines. So I think it's important, as you said, to be very clear on that. And that, you know, just because it's acting training, there should still be a very clear barrier between talking about actual personal details that you don't want to talk about or, you know, the, 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 the person, um, you know, uh, getting involved with you or, or treating you in any way inappropriately. Um, and also, you know, this can happen in other contexts too, obviously, besides just acting training. So yes, I think, you know, no, I think it's, uh, it's very, um, I think you're being very, um, illustrative and, you know, bottom line is, uh, you know, better safe than sorry. If your instinct starts to say that something's wrong or you're not comfortable, then, you know, I would say jump on some kind of action right away, whether it be talking to someone or, you know, if, if ultimately you have to not be in that class or, or be in that school or whatever, if it really gets to that point, mm -hmm. uh, then, you know, so be it. But, um, you know, very, very yeah. interesting and, and very important. And I'm, I'm very sorry that happened to you, but yes, okay. I think it's, uh, it's good that you're doing this show and, and trying to, to, you know, to bring this to light, you know, again, between all the news related stuff and the fact that this seems to be, or different versions of this seem to be so much more pervasive than, than we realize, you know, I think mm -hmm. others say the more people open up, the more these things are brought to light, the more awareness there will be. And, and hopefully that will help. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, there, yeah. yeah. Oh, so go ahead. No, no, please. Uh, you know, there, like there was, there was something I heard on NPR, six months or a year ago about even like the swimmers on the, um, there were some swimmers on the Olympic U S Olympics. Yeah. I, I think it was U S the U S team where same thing. Like they, they were very close with their coach and like some of them had a sexual relationship and then it wasn't until years later that they were like, wait a minute, that wasn't, um, 
that probably wasn't totally consensual and I thought it was. And, and, uh, and they were talking about the, 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 the unique relationship of the, the mentor mentee. Sure. And that the, and the trust and like, whether it's with the swimming or with ice skating, like there, and and they were talking about the trust that is required. Yeah. To, to, it's like the trust you need with a therapist. Yeah. I mean, to, and, and it's so easy to be in that situation and for someone to be violating that trust in these very little ways, these like very insidious ways. And it's like, as soon as, like, if I just keep thinking of other things to look for, like if, you know, if you, it, it can be a fine line when you start getting invited to, I'm not saying you should never go to a family function or do something outside with them, right. but that can be like a fine line of like, you know, like this, there's all of these seemingly innocent things that can just remain innocent or, and, or it can very quickly become something and it happens so fast that you're, you know, and, and I overrode my instincts. Mm-hmm. And so, and that was, you know, in my situation, that was because I was basically told, shut up, take the note. And that was very, and that happens, I think, a lot in these types of, like, intense coaching relationships, whether you're trained to be an all-star athlete or an actor. Yeah, but again, I think there's an important distinction between, you know, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but, but saying it that way, shut up, take the note, sounds inappropriate on its face, you know, already. So, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then, you know, I know it's a hard question to answer, but, you know, I mean, it's so sick and it's so, it's so disgusting. And yet it's so somewhat common, as we said, uh, uh-huh. in different versions, you know, I, I know this is probably a silly, this is not an easy question to answer, but I... No, go ahead, no, um, go, I want, I want people to ask the questions that... Well, I'm just curious, I'm just curious your opinion on why you think there's so much of this. I mean, why are there so many <laughs> people with this disturbed, you know... Uh, need yeah. and, and and capacity for for abuse and misogyny and mm-hmm. it's just you know it just it just I just I I feel I feel naive but it's like God no. why are there so many why are there so many horrible people out there <laughs> like you know well I have a so I have a few answers to that because yeah. the why is of course something that I've constantly thought about and did research on and there's a few answers to this yeah one is that there is um, there's something called like the chain of pain hmm. which is that um, abuse gets passed down right and whether it's been done to you most uh, oftentimes if someone is inflicting some kind of abuse, it's because they were abused. Yeah. And it takes a lot of, you know, that it takes that awareness for you and to be like, whoa, whoa, to like stop the chain. Right. And this was actually a term that I learned when I did a social justice theater workshop out in California where they have their, this, where they do, they do um, theater and with prisoners. Mm-hmm. And 
they, that was, that was a term I learned there, which is like a lot of these people who are incarcerated are unfortunately in this kind of like cycle and this chain of pain and, 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 and their goal, their goals in doing like theater workshops and doing things with them is that they become more emotionally aware and can stop that chain. And so that's one of, that's one of the things, um, is that it's, it's, you know, if, if someone has been abused, they are going to keep playing out that abuse, whether it's inflicted on others or inflicted on themselves. Yeah. And then the other kind of overall is that it, you know, we, domestic violence, sexual abuse, you know, all those things, it's, it's put under the umbrella of like, of it, this, it, it's not about sex. It's not about love. It's about power and control. And I recently heard, I think it was um, Brene Brown, who is, who gives a lot of TED talks and she's a social worker and she talks about vulnerability. And she said, it's a, you know, she framed it as a, it's an act of someone feeling powerless. Like, yes, they're seeking this power control because they feel so powerless. So, and she, and she was talking about even looking at like these white supremacists who go and do terrible things mm-hmm. to, to other groups of people. And she's like, you know, we can say whatever we want about like, well, why should, why are they feeling like victims? They have, have had all the privileges, but regardless of what we're seeing, what we're seeing them act out is that they are in pain. Whether we want to say that it's right. justified right. pain or not, sure. they are acting out pain. Yeah. And that is what it is. Right. And that's why it happens is that people are feeling powerlessness yeah. in their life for whatever reason, yeah. whether it's been something that's been done to them or something. That's, and so that is their way of having some kind of control over their life. Yeah. It's like controlling, you know, having control over others. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, you know, it's crazy, but again, hopefully the more awareness gets out there and the more people can be taught to be sensitive to the signs and, you know, young people can have the, uh, the ability and the, the strength, you know, with hopefully good parents and everything who instill in them to, to not, you know, put up with these sort of things, you know, it's, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's never, you know, if, and if something does happen, it's never your fault. It's never your parents' fault. It's never anybody's fault. Right. It's all, you know, it's, it's the, it's the perpetrator. And it's really easy to, to go into these other, to shift the blame and to say, oh, like, you know, my parents, the parents didn't protect their, that kid enough. Or, you know, it, it, the fact is that a lot of people don't know about the intricacies. Yeah. And it's, you know, this is just, and people are like sex is the most shameful subject right and and um and our and again it's not as we said it's not just a women's issue it's a men's issue as well and men are even more seem to be even more uh, uh, ashamed in talking about it mm-hmm. sure yeah yeah and you know Again, you're talking about a specific type of dynamic with a teacher and a young person, but of course, we all know that um, this goes more generally too into the whole 
Well, obviously, you know, the whole Me Too thing, as you said, and, and Harvey Weinstein and all that is, is one egregious type of example. But, you know, I can say from my own experience, I mean, I'm almost 40 now and I don't, I'm not an actor anymore, but, you know, I was very fortunate, as I think a lot of us were, in that I came up doing theater and it was always very positive. And, you know, you bonded closely with your castmates and everything, especially when you were young. And, you know, there were often dating and romantic things that happened as well. And it was all good. <laughs> and there was nothing, you know, uh, problematic or, or uh, uh, you know, what's the word? I can't think of the word, but, you know, uh, devious or anything about it. Mm -hmm. Sinister is what I was trying to say. Sinister. Oh, okay. Um, and then, you know, as I got into my later 20s and 30s, even before the Me Too thing happened more recently, um, I guess my, my sort of point or thought is that it's tough now because it's, it's, you know, people, and I'm not saying this is wrong, but people are more scared and, you know, things that, you know, acting and doing theater and all that kind of stuff is an environment that uh, tends to um, create bonds and relationships, as I said. So, again, the line of, is this consensual or is this, uh, you, you know, especially if, mm -hmm. let's say, let's say you're, you're portraying people in a relationship in a play or a film or something, and you have to be intimate to a degree on stage or on camera. And then mm -hmm. if you are attracted to the person, you know, you know what I'm saying. I'm not asking a very yeah. clear question. I'm just giving the thought that the acting world has always made this kind of thing even more difficult sometimes to, to be sure whether something is real or not. And I guess, uh, again, we just all have to be a little more on our toes, uh, you know, and, yeah. and just and be I aware of stuff. Theater, yeah. theaters, theaters are, like, really responding to, to this. Um, mm -hmm. Like, uh, AR, uh, ART New York has this, um, uh, they, they are developed, they have this initiative this year, I'm blanking on the name. But they have this initiative where they're working with different theater companies and having like an ombuds person to be to facilitate to be there to facilitate um, if somebody feels uncomfortable, they need someone to go to. Uh -huh. There's that. That's why there's been the need, the, the drive for like intimacy directors. I was say, I know about the intimacy coaches for films and stuff. Yeah, because. Uh, sometimes there was just, there seemed to be a need for like, okay, we should have like aware, we should bring, we should do this with uh, thoughtfulness and not just, you know, I've been on like a student film set years ago, years ago where mm -hmm. I, you know, because I was like very naive and young and didn't know like what my rights were. I was told one thing. And then when I got on set, I was told another thing. And I, I could have said right then and there, no. Yeah. I'm not comfortable with this as well, but like, I didn't know what to do because I was like, oh, well, I guess I just got to go along with it. And it wasn't until afterwards I was like, I should not have done that. I was not comfortable with that. And then, and then I had the right to. And that's another hard thing. So that's why it's like, it's good to have these different things in place. And 
you know, it's even more hard for, you know, actors, like, we have to advocate for ourselves, that there isn't anybody there, if there isn't anyone there to advocate for us, and that you have the right to say, hey, whether it's between the other actor, or, like, the director, like, hey, I'm not comfortable with this, can we, like, slow this down, or can we, you know, do this in steps, and, um, uh, and, and, you know, it might sound to some people that this is like, but that's, that's acting you have to do. It. And it's not, no, it's not saying you aren't ready to plunge into whatever the needs are. It's just that there's a certain way for it to be done. And it can't just be like, okay, you actors, you figure it out. Oh, you know, okay. like, like one of the things is that like, if you are doing like an intimate thing with an act, with another actor, is that there has to be uh, a witness in the room so that it's right whether it's the director or an intimacy director or someone so that it's because that makes it, uh, like you shouldn't be practicing that on your own. Right. As a therapist. You shouldn't be Absolutely. told that you should be. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, by the way, I had another guest on the podcast. Uh, if anybody, uh, goes back and listens to the episode with, uh, someone named Rachel Romack, she also shared a, a very disturbing story about, you know, this audition she applied for, and it turned out to be uh, a very um, inappropriate um, uh, series. Oh, no. no. Well, fortunately, nothing, like, actually happened to her, but but it was just a disturbing sort of, you know, it turned out to be a very disturbing, shady thing. And uh, if you listen to the episode, she, she tells the story. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm going to so, go, I'm going to listen to it, definitely. <laughs> Rachel Romack. Um so the, the point being, yeah, there's a lot of horribleness out there. And uh, the other uh, example I just realized I, I could have thought of, too, was, um, or, or, you know, did, did think of now is, um, so, you know, I, I was involved in improv for a while. And mm-hmm. um, uh, the pit, the People's Improv Theater, is, is probably the biggest or one of the biggest along with UCB you know, professional improv theater and, and training facility in New York. And it's a great place. Um, I was involved there for a while. Um, so anyway, a few, a while, I don't know, last year or something, I was, I hadn't been doing, I hadn't done anything there in a long time, but I was just glancing at their website and uh, cause I was considering maybe taking a class again. And they now have this whole long thing on the website uh, about a policy related to classes, and they are blunt. It says, like, you know, you may not take a class with a teacher you've had any romantic or sexual involvement with. I mean, they bluntly, you know, talk about all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure part of it is in response to the whole Me Too thing. But then also, you know, again, it's an environment where, you know, you're supposed to be having fun with these people. And, I mean, the, the, the theater has a bar connected to it or in it. And, and you're supposed to, you know, you're, it's, it, you're encouraged to hang out and be social and the whole thing. So, you know, I, obviously... Uh, you know, teachers and students have gotten involved and whatever the case. But my point is, that's another example of they had to, mm-hmm. they had to be very direct in their, you know, policies and things related to it. So it's, it's a lot. It's, it's just the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but it's important. And that, and that's you know, like, again, it's important. Yeah, it's important because, yeah. um, 
you know, it's not, I, I can't speak for every situation, but one of the things I really learned from this experience and that I want to take going forward and to share with other people is that it's really, and, the, and why the pit, you know, has that policy yeah. probably is that it's very hard to remain objective as someone's teacher yeah. and as a student. It's yeah. very hard to have remain objective if you have cross that boundary with them. Of course. I don't care how compart the how much you think you can compartmentalize it. It's just it's just hard. Yeah. I'm not saying it isn't done. I'm not saying that like and it's not to say like, oh, maybe someone was your teacher in a class and you're the same age and then afterwards, you know, you kind of meet and then the class is over and you can you get married and live happily, you know, ever after or whatever that is. And yeah, yeah. it's not to say that those things don't happen, but to be like an ongoing teacher or mentor I, I don't know. It's like I think it you know, it maybe it works, you know, sometimes, but I it get it can get too complicated and you're not object like I'll say this again, it's just like it's not purely objective because No, of course. You especially if you go home with that person and you see what they you know what I mean? And you think people might think, Well, because you know so much more about them that's gonna bring it, you know, even more in the classroom. No, I mean there's a reason like I think of it as like the therapist client relationship. Absolutely. And there's like a reason why there's, you know, like if a therapist sees you in public, they're not supposed to acknowledge you unless you as the client acknowledge them. And like, you're, and you know, you're supposed to keep things separate so that the trust in the room is sacred. And, 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 and it, that's sacred. It, it's important. That, and that's to keep that objectivity. Of course, of course. Not to mention, you know, how do the other students in the class supposed to feel? Oh, I'm, yeah. That's so, amazing. <laughs> of course. So, anyway, the point is, yes, it's a big deal. Um, so, the show, not, your show. And that's, and that's not to feel, oh, sorry, just to say that's not, that's not that you shouldn't, you shouldn't feel bad, like, if that's happened or if you've done that or, like, if you even get, if you get attracted to your teacher or to your student, like, that's, you know, you can't stop that. It's going to happen. But then you also have the choice of like, okay, well, maybe we'll just do this after the class is over. Okay, that's all I need to say. <laughs> exactly. 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 So your show then, uh, Simple Math, uh, the first time you did it was last year's Fringe Festival. Is that right? Um, so that was the first time I did it, like, I guess, uh, pro professionally, publicly. Mm -hmm. Um in October 2018, I had developed it at my at my grad school and did a couple workshops with it there. I even did it as part of a where I was in Ohio. There was a um, it was an April Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and I did it as part of like an art walk. Um, but yeah, October 2018 at the New York Fringe Festival was the first like pub like I guess it's technically the world premiere. Right. And now it's coming up again. Um, to that we're, as we're recording this, tomorrow is Easter Sunday. Um, so mm -hmm. we'll hear this, uh, this coming week, right? You know, right after that, it's the following weekend, uh, Sunday and yes. Monday, uh, at yes. the tank in, in, in the yes. midtown. Um, so tell us about this, this particular run of it and, uh, how people can yeah. uh, come see it if they want to. Yeah, so this particular run of it, um, it's designed for, I mean, it's a workshop. I've done some rewrites and I'm trying some new things and, and I, I, and it's going to be with the invitation for people to provide feedback so that I can keep developing 
and making it stronger and seeing what works and what doesn't. And it's, uh, there is, um, this, so in October and now that was the first time I actually had music composed for it, original music. And so that's going to be a part of it again, a little bit of music tweaking. And, um, so like I said, some tweaking with the script and, and, uh, it's, it's at seven o'clock on Sunday, the 28th and Monday, the 29th at the tank. The runtime is about an hour with, and then there's going to be some time, um, in the, in the, in the space or in the lobby. I'm not sure exactly what it's going to be just for this like invited feedback. I'm going to have questions. And I'm, what I'm thinking of having is if, it, it, it can be like a pretty triggering subject. And also I know when I go to see theater, sometimes I need some time to like let it sink in and think about it. And yes. so there'll be an opportunity to give, to talk to me or the other people involved and ask questions right at, at the moment. Or I'll be also providing like an email address so that people can give some thoughts and feedback or ask questions after because it's a lot, it can be a lot to take in. Great. And again, we'll post all the details and links and everything in the episode notes here. But where do people go if they want to get tickets? Um, so there, I have a, a link. Um, there's a Facebook, there's a Facebook event that the tank made, um, simple math at the tank. And then there's also like a brown paper tickets link, which I will I think I could, I think I provided you with, um, yeah, tickets are available online. They're only $10. And if the money is an issue, come talk to me and I can get you, if you want to be part of it and like money is, or if you want to, you know, see it and you're strapped for cash, then I will not turn you away. That's very generous of you. And uh, yeah, so yeah, <laughs> make sure to post uh, all those exact links and everything in the episode notes. So speaking of money, I do have a couple of practical questions about your sure. putting up the show. You know, one of the themes that has emerged in this podcast, not surprisingly, is people producing their own work for a variety of reasons. Uh, and it's a okay. great thing. It's also can be a very challenging thing, especially in New York. So, um, first of all, uh, for this run at the tank, for example, did you have to put up all the money yourself or? So this is all going to be funded by a Kickstarter. So you've already so done Kickstarter. It's, it's in the process. Oh, so okay. we have six, six more days of the Kickstarter. If anybody listening wants to contribute, okay. we greatly appreciate it. And so I will also, uh, it's simple math, uh, a workshop Kickstarter. I just, I think that the exact, if I were to say the exact website link would be too long, but, um, yeah. and again, we'll, do we'll post it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll post it. Um, so yeah, that's all. Yeah. So the goal is, um, so the goal, yeah. So this is all hopefully getting funded through a Kickstarter. It's, but it, I, I found my producers in January and it was just, um, finding, finding, finding someone long term to really produce and fund a show, it takes time. Mm -hmm. So you have to keep, you, you kind of have to keep doing it yourself, whether it's out of your own pocket or a Kickstarter or a combination of both until 
until, you know, someone comes and sees it or variety of says, hey, we want to, we want to help you with this. Absolutely. And, um, so good. So, uh, you know, and, and yeah, let's talk about using Kickstarter and GoFundMe and things like that. Cause again, uh, very popular these days as well as Patreon and other things like that, uh, for all different kinds of projects and even just for people who want individual support, you know, for their general, uh, careers yeah. or whatever they're doing. There's, there's ways to do that too. Um, and it is a good thing. I think it's a very, one of the many good signs of, of the times we're in with this, all the, this kind of technology and internet stuff and everything and really democratizing, you know, audience supporting mm-hmm. artists and art they care about and so forth. Um, and, you know, the ability to, to do things, um, you know, for free and whatever. Um, but so with Kickstarter, for example, you know, your case seems to be a very good example of, of how to use Kickstarter because you have a very clear project, you've done it before, you have examples, you have, you know, uh, I don't know if you have footage or whatever you have, yeah, but footage. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the misconceptions about Kickstarter and similar sites is that, you know, you start from zero and then people give you money, and then you can make what you want to make. And it doesn't quite work that way. You need to have quite a bit of, you know, at least very concrete, um, demonstrable plans and so forth, uh, if not already, you know, some elements of production um, to show people, you know, on Kickstarter um, before they can, can give you money. So can you explain a little more about that process? And any advice sure. for anybody out there who might want to use Kickstarter for something, especially if they're yeah. really only in the beginning or development stages of whatever it is they're trying to do? Yeah. Um, well, for, choosing which in, um, independent, like, crowdsource funding right. you want to uh, use is important. Yes. Kickstarter, the, advantage, the advantage of Kickstarter is that the the way that it plays on people's psychology is that when you have like, okay, we have this amount of time, otherwise we're not going to make our money. It, it, it actually like encourages people are more encouraged to help. Cause like, Oh, if I give like five bucks, I give, I give 10 bucks that helps them reach their goal versus something like GoFundMe, which is like, you get all the money no matter what. And that was the first, that was what I first used in for the fringe. And then my producers, I never uh, advise using Kickstarter this time because of that, uh, because of that, that psychology aspect to it, which is like, oh, they, okay, they have to reach this goal, otherwise they don't get it. Right. Uh, it's really, it's really important to have the breakdown of like where exactly the money is going to. Right. As if, as if you were providing a budget sheet to any, any organization or anything that you were doing. Yeah. So, so seeing, okay, this is exactly where the money is going. Uh, also the personal story aspect to it, which is like, this is why this is important to me. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. It's uncomfortable to solicit money from people, <laughs> you know, you know, like it's not the most comfortable thing for me. And, um, I, I wouldn't do it if I couldn't, if I didn't have 
to quote unquote have to, that's a loaded term. But I, I wouldn't, you know, but like when I did the fringe, I used a significant amount of my, like all my money as well as a little bit of the GoFundMe. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's tough. I don't like, it's kind of like the tipping system at restaurants in the United States. I don't like that we have to rely on, you know, these, like this, I mean, on patrons to pay the salaries for servers. Right. But of course there is something really, like you said, that's um, democratic about it. Right. You can reach different kinds of people who maybe like do have money and they do want something to support. Right. And, um, so yeah, just having like a really specific budget there and like, sharing like why this, you know, why this is important to you and people like videos. That's yes. why Instagram and all that, all those platforms, like, you know, people really respond to it. You know, people, people like videos because mm-hmm. they, it, it's, it's media. And so if you have something like that, um, even if you don't have footage of your show yet, I've seen so many where it's just someone like talking and being like, Hey, like, it's like a very personal interview. Like, this is why this is important to me. Yeah, and, you know, of course, there can be scams out there, but also sometimes, you know, things don't necessarily work out, even if you do get the money. So let me ask you this, and especially since you have done both, uh, how does it work with Kickstarter or and with GoFundMe? Once you get the money, if you do, do you have to then go back and still prove how you use it? No. You don't. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. And I was like, no, you actually you don't. So they don't do um, any kind of follow up with you. You don't have to do any any kind of documentation. Or oh no. Oh no. I mean, I, those those crowd those crowd source funding. It's like it's it's you know they're not. It's not like being part of this. What is it called? It's not like you have a. It's not like having a fiscal sponsor where you have to, or you're working for a nonprofit organization where you've been getting donations and you have to like report back to your board right. saying this is what I actually use it for. Right. It's totally democratic. It's totally like up to you. Well, and, like, you know, I mean, that's, that's good in a sense, as long as people are being honest. Yeah. And, um, yeah. But obviously the people who donate expect to hear what's going on and, uh, Right, like right. That. And so yeah. you want to do that honor in saying like, you know, this is what, this is what we've done. Right. And with my first, you know, with, with, with my GoFundMe, I mean, that money got deposited directly into my account because I didn't have any producers. I was the producer and I just, because I was using most of my own, I, because I was using all my own money anyway to pay for everything, like mm-hmm. it just became part of the fund and nobody asked to see it but now for this kickstarter i mean what we've what we've done is as an incentive we've made like if 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 someone donates x amount we're gonna put the give them a shout out in the program if someone donates this amount we're gonna um i think uh write them a personalized thank you note well actually it's funny you say that because that makes sense but also i was gonna ask you know, I'm not sure if this seems logical or not, but I guess, you know, if someone donates a decent amount of money toward you putting up this show, you know, are they expected to also then buy a ticket when they come to see it? I guess, yes, they are. I guess that's not really that's a, that's a, that's crazy, but I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah. So yeah. when I was doing The Fringe, um, one of the things that we were advised on was, 
if like obviously it's totally up to you but like if what what some people did in their crowd fund crowd source funding um was that if somebody donated a certain amount then they got a ticket so that was like one right. strategy some people can do that yeah yeah i guess it's just a matter of whether you decide to lay out those terms at the outset or not again i guess it's not you know, I, it is what it is. It's not like there's any reason you should or shouldn't. It's whatever the person decides. It's, you know, it's... Yeah, but that is, but that is a strategy, especially if someone donated, like, a significant amount. And uh, the other thing is sometimes people will donate if they're not, like, if they won't physically be there or be able sure. to make the show. Right, right. So that's, like, another way that they... Or some people are like, hey, like... I'm not going to contribute to the fundry, like the crowdfunding, but I'm going to come and pay for a ticket, there you which go. is still all going into the same bucket. And again, as I've pointed out with other guests on this podcast, um, what people need to understand is, you know, <laughs> producing theater in New York at any level is uh, extremely expensive. You know, Especially indie theater in New York. Exactly. Renting a theater alone, uh, along with whatever else, you know, whatever your other costs are. And sadly, in most cases, the notion that you'll make enough from box office proceeds to cover it uh, is unfortunately often um, extremely unlikely. And it shouldn't be. But it is, um, and to let alone make a profit, if that's your goal, uh, is very hard. So people need to. Know <laughs> yeah. That. If people, if people are trying to produce indie theater, um, that really is a labor of love, and it's not an easy thing. Or a, oh yeah, I guess I, 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 risk, I assume that this goes without being said that you. You, you're not necessarily going to go in and make a profit. You're doing it out of the labor of love. If you want to make profit in producing, you should be with the, you know, with Broadway. Yeah, with like Disney, big. Disney musicals, exactly. Um, and, um, and, and also that's, but also like you shouldn't, you don't have, it's okay to go in and say, I don't want to lose money. Like that's okay. Of course. Yeah, of course. And say, at least, at least I want to break even. And, um, but also seeing it as an investment. Like I went into the New York fringe knowing that I would quote unquote lose money, right. but I, but I knew that it was an investment for the future iterations of it because I was like, okay, I got to invest this now so that in the next, so now, so now in this stage, I'm not, I'm trying to not invest any of my own actual money. I'm trying to, you know, hopefully it gets raised from this Kickstarter and that, uh, but the other thing is that I do have to be ready, like, especially if it's a, especially if it's a camp, a Kickstarter campaign, if we don't meet our goal, I have to be ready to put my own money in there so that I don't just lose all that money. Does that make sense? Of course it does. And that's, again, that's because you can make it after. because yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely. And one other logistical question I'm curious about. Do you use an outside director? Do you have someone there as a, a directing no, set of eyes, or it's just you? Um, I That's a great question. Um, and before I forget, I wanted to say one thing about producing indie theater. There sure. are spaces in New York that do not charge you to use space. So, like, Dixon yeah. Place and The Tank 
they do not charge me. They do not charge you to rent the space. It's just, I think they just get like, oh, what, I'm sorry. It's like, it's in a contract somewhere, but off the top of my head, I think it's like they get some of the box office proceeds. And this, so if you're looking to produce your own work, that's the kind of places that you want to be looking at, which is something like the tank or like Dixon place where it's like, they're interested, like you're not having to like pay a fee to you to like, so that's also how you can really save on costs. And then, um, and the director question, I, this is a director that I actually know from school. I worked with him on a few shows there and we had a really good working relationship already. And towards the end of the year when I was graduating and he, he had come and seen the first workshop of it, of it, I had a different director there who was a woman and she wasn't graduating yet. Incredible undergrad named Olivia Rocco. And, um, and, uh, she actually studied with the city company over the summer, um, and Bogart's, um, company. And, uh, so then I asked, um, this guy, Ben, who, um, if he was, I was like, Hey, would you be interested in like working with me on the next iteration of it? And he's like, yeah, I've never done a woman show before. And we like to work together. And then shortly after I found out, which was May, like right after I graduated that my show had gotten to the fringe and we have, and like he was already moving to New York. So it just worked out perfectly. Like I couldn't believe the coincidence. So he worked with me for the fringe. And then in this workshop, uh, he was my first choice again, because like he already like knows the show so well. And I don't know how people direct their own pieces that they perform in. There's no way that I could do that. Like, I think that if you always need a pair of outside eyes, like you can't, yourself and it's kind of like being in a relationship with someone you're like wow I didn't realize I'm doing that and they're kind of like a mirror (laughs) well no exactly that's exactly what I was gonna say is that you know anybody who's you know knows anything real about theater would probably say that that you just you have to have an outside person directing no matter what um so I you know I, I would agree with you uh, but I was going to ask, you know, and so it sounds like, you know, you have a good mature view of that, but I was going to ask, you know, when it's something you've written, you're performing, not to mention how truly personal and truly important it is, is it hard for you to give up that aspect of the control? Or, you know, do you worry that his direction, his or her direction won't really execute your vision, so to speak, or... That's a, that's a great question. I actually, the guy who filmed, my friend Brian, who filmed um, the show when it was at the Fringe, I have like a filmed version of it now. Someone else mm-hmm. I went to school with, he asked me the same question because he's in the film world. He was like, how do you, because he's a director of film, he's like, how do you, like, how do you deal with that? And like, it was funny because I hadn't even thought about it because my relationship with my director, Ben, is so lovely and he's so collaborative. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, you know, when you're, when you are working with the right people, they want to support your vision and they, their, their strength, uh, the, the strength of a director is not, I'm going to come here and I'm going to shape this and I have a vision. There's a lot of directors that are like that. So, uh oh, I might get in trouble for saying that, but, um, <laughs> it's for them to support the artist's vision. Right. And the, an objective eye and say, okay, this is my two cents, but at the end of the day, like you have total, 
you know, I don't feel like I'm giving up control. I, what we do is I say, okay, I, I feel this way about something and he'll say, okay, like justify it, not for his sake, but for, for us to say it out loud. Right. Right. And if we can find a justification for it, then it works. And if not, then, and then I might realize, oh yeah, you're right. That doesn't work. Everything's in service of the, what's going to create the, the strongest piece of work. And same thing with him. Like there's rarely times where I'm like, I don't think that's how it should go. And if there is, I, I explain it to him and I explain it really thoroughly. And, but it, it rarely happens because like, we're so on the same page. And like, as soon as he says something like, yeah, like I just like feel it in my bones. I'm like, yes, you're exactly right. Like even just yesterday when we were rehearsing, there was something that he was like, there's something in the way that you've written this that doesn't feel fully fleshed out. And this is why. And I was like, oh my gosh, I know exactly. Wow. Thank you for saying that, that I totally get what you're saying. And I, you know, if, if people are able to justify right. why they feel the way they feel about something and, um, in this creative process, you can get so much done and you can gain so much understanding. And I wouldn't be able to, the piece would not be where it was if it weren't for all these collaborators and these different voices giving their feedback. Um, I had an assistant director, a close friend of mine, Claire Ochan, who was, she was my assistant director in the first, in the, in the fringe and piece. And there was so much valuable stuff that she provided too, that I would, that, um, and again, it was all like, okay, this is just my two cents, but it's your piece. And it's, um, but, and like, if they gave an idea and it resonated with me, I was like, yes, that's it. Cause I didn't have, like, I had some vision, but there's still, I'm still such a young theater artist and there's so much that I still have to learn. And I learn from other people in the room and other people having eyes on it. And so I guess maybe it's just in my personality that I'm, that I'm, uh, open to learning and realizing that I don't have all the answers. And so that's kind of how that can work. Yeah, no, well, really well said. And that all sounds beautiful. That really is how it's supposed to be. That's phenomenal. Yeah, all right, awesome. This carries, this, this carries over also with, like, anyone that you're acting coaching with. Like, sure. if you're going for an audition, whether it's, like, you know, and someone is trying to really shape what's going on rather than having it come from you. Like mm-hmm. that's not, that's not someone I'd want to study with. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, again, so the show is, uh, next Sunday and Monday, the weekend after Easter, um, at the tank and we'll post all the links as well as the Kickstarter and everything, uh, in the episode yeah, notes. And, uh, that's very exciting. Yeah. So, um, obviously we took a lot of time talking about all that and rightly so. I'm glad we did. Um, so we may have to have you back for a part two at some point, which has happened (laughs) with other guests to really get into the rest of your history and your story and everything. Uh, but in some time that we do have left, I would like to talk a little bit about it. So, um, let's talk first about, um, You do a lot of teaching and, as you mentioned earlier, social justice type work. Uh, Tell us about that, that side of your career. Yeah, so I I work at the Boys and Girls Club in Queens, 
Mm-hmm. And I'm, it's an after school program and I'm the, I'm the drama instructor, but I don't just, drama is not the only thing I do. Like I also, I'm there for homework help and just kind of general youth development. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and when I was in school, I realized that that was a really important part of what I wanted to do that would keep me going every day. Uh, for me, I, like before going to grad school, I was, I was making money working in restaurants, but it was like, it was wearing on me. And I said, okay, like, I don't want to, for me, like, it's not worth it anymore. I want to find something that I can do every day that's going to feel fulfilling so that I'm not living and dying by an audition I may or may not have. So I discovered just how much I really enjoyed teaching while in grad school. And so whether it was teaching at the university level and when I did teach at the university level, I taught um, non-acting majors, which I loved. I love teaching acting to non-actors mm-hmm. and introducing them to it. It's my favorite thing mm-hmm. I, I discovered. And I also, <laughs> while I was in Ohio, I worked with um, at-risk youth in the community. Um, and, and I taught theater camps and directed them in shows. And that was really fulfilling. So I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to have this in my life. It, it keep it, it keeps me going, and it reminds me that theater is a beautiful, accessible, expressive art. And I want to feel like I'm making a difference in people's lives, not just li- like I said, living and dying by whether or not I have an audition. <laughs> right. So, so I was so right after the fringe ended, I got this job at the Boys and Girls Club. I've been there, I've been there since November, and excuse me, we just actually had a talent show where all the staff, because a lot of my staff are also actors. And so we performed as like a fundraiser for the kids. And I also brought in a casting director last Sunday named Erica Palgon. Some people might know who she is. And she taught an on-camera class to the kids there. And it was a wonderful collaboration. And we're going to keep it going because I feel really passionate about making things like this accessible to people who might not, necessarily come from families that have the money or the resources or the knowledge that this is possible. So I'm very passionate about bridging that gap. I also, um, I don't know if you've, I'm sure you've heard of Airbnb. Oh yeah. There is a, there's a component of Airbnb called Airbnb experiences. Yes. And I, oh, you've heard, you've heard of it. And I, well, I, I, I can't help but see it because every time I click on my Airbnb app now, <laughs> instead of just awesome. going to homes, it goes, do you want homes or do you want experiences? And I'm yep, like, ah, yep. Okay. So that was, that was me the summer of 2017 when I spent the summer in Europe. I was by myself. I was an au pair and I was like, well, I want to get out and see things. And then like, this popped up on Airbnb. It's like experiences. What's this? So I got to go on these like kinds of experiences and tours with people who lived there, who curated their own thing. Um, and I, so one of them, I went on a couple and one of them I went on was like, it was called dancing on the CN. It was this boat, a stationary boat on the river. And I took like group dance classes and it was so much fun. And I asked the host, like, how, where, how did you come up with this? What do you like? And I, I picked her brain and I said, okay, when I move back to New York, this is what I want to do. And I want to do it with acting. So when I moved back here after school in August, as I was prepping for the fringe, 
And as I was doing a, a social justice theater tour, which is something I'll also get into, I started, I started creating my platform. And so it started out as I want to take people on a curated theater experience. Like I basically, you know, cause I was like, okay, tourists come to New York and they want to come see shows. So I want to provide kind of like a classroom experience where I'm putting into context and asking questions that are provoking to them about like what they saw and like explain some asking things and Airbnb works with you kind of like Shark Tank minus the intensity. Right. <laughs> they're, they're, they work with you because it's there to their benefit if you succeed because they make a percentage yeah. off of your booking. Yeah. And they were the ones that gave me the idea. Why don't you teach an acting class? And I was That's like, perfect. what? Tourists want to come to New York and take an acting class? And they're like, yes. And that's something that I've learned, which is, and this is, and this is reflective in like immersive theater and the rise of that, like sleep no more, how successful that's been is yes, people like to go and see shows, but people also want a direct experience. Yes. And so now that's what I do is I have this Airbnb experience where I, I, and I target as like, it doesn't matter. Like this is for people who've never taken an acting class in their life. Yeah. And, or maybe you have and you want to still do, you know, study, like learn, take a, take a workshop. Mm-hmm. And people also come, and I've tweaked my platform to also target this, but people also come if they are like looking to have some kind of corporate advancement. Like they, maybe they have trouble speaking in front of people to give presentations. Maybe they want to improve their communication and listening. And so I gear it towards that. And, that's been really fun and really rewarding and I want to keep doing things like that like basically bringing acting principles to the non-acting sector and that's something I'm really passionate about and I mean that's not it's I want it to be steady like it's something I would eventually like to be steady but it's not yet it it pops up every so often and I had a few bookings this week and because it was um holiday time and uh yeah, I so I do that, and um, eventually I'd like to be like a coach, like an audition coach. Uh, but you know, everything everything in good time. <laughs> well, the Airbnb thing is so great. It's yet another example of all these different venues, avenues that are available to people to to create, to make money, to do all these things, oh, yeah. and, to, and to connect with people. It's an amazing time to be alive, as we said. So uh, that's really fantastic. I didn't even, I never really thought about what, I didn't really know what that Airbnb experiences thing was. So that's very cool. Um, you can do anything. Like if you, you know, if you're working in a restaurant business and you know a lot about food and drink, create an experience that's going to take people, uh, people love drinking, especially tourists. Yeah. Like take them, take them on like a, a curated, like bar hopping tour. Right. And at the end of the day, people want this. They want this, like, individualized, personalized thing where, like, you're an insider here. You're showing them the things that they wouldn't necessarily know how to find themselves. Yeah, and what's what's cool about that, I'm realizing, too, if I understand you correctly, is at least in some cases... You don't have to wait to have a whole group of people. It's not like a meetup or something. This can literally be a one-on-one individual thing. Yeah, I've done it. And, like, just like starting any business, you know, you're not necessarily going to make, you're not always going to, like, make a ton of money at the beginning. And so I've had, sometimes I had, 
you know, where it was just one person that booked and I still ran it because yeah. it was important to, because you never know who you're going to meet. You never know who they're going to tell. They also, you know, you also can really live and die by their reviews. And if you get good reviews, your, your experience pops up more on the page. And so, especially at the beginning, like if only one person signs up, take it. <laughs> no, absolutely. So that's very cool. So is there a direct link to your Airbnb thing as well that we can post? Uh, sure. All right, um, so you'll, you'll get that to me, and we'll we'll post that as well. Um, yeah, so, it's called. It's, I, it used to be called. It used to be called. Anyone can be an actor, but I just tweaked <laughs> the name because um, I really believe that. I really believe anyone can be an actor. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> and that's learn the principles. And that's that's was actually going to be part of my next question, which is you okay. said. You said, you know, the thing you discovered you love, one of the things you discovered you love is teaching acting to non-actors. What, what yeah. is it about that that you find so fulfilling? One, it demystifies that acting is this, like, thing that's elite, <laughs> that only some people, that only some people can do. And there's a lot of people that'll be like, what are you talking about? Yes, only, yes, not everybody can do it. Like, not everybody has what it takes. Right. Not every, okay, not everybody has what it takes to withstand the rigors of what it takes to, like, survive this difficult business. Yeah. Not everybody has what it takes to go through kind of the, the like, emotional vulnerability and opening that's required. But if, with the right with the right teacher and the right coaxing, like, you can, you know, everybody can gain something out of it. And even if it's, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to, like, say, whoa, I cried in acting class. Now I'm, you know, you don't have to, that doesn't have to be you, but you can't, but, like, uh, you can, you know, when, 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 when someone is gaining insight about the way that humans interact, the way that humans behave, the way that we listen or don't listen, I love saying to new students, we all have the ability in us to be murderers and this, or, or to be this, and, and, they, and they like look at me with shock. I'm like, yeah, I mean, not okay. That's like, it sounds like an extreme thing to say, but that's also the basis of empathy, right? Which is if if I if I understand that if I was pushed to a certain level, that maybe I would mur maybe I would murder because that's something that we have to go to in acting training. Like if we have to explore those temperaments, those sides of our temperament, which is what would it take for me to murder somebody? And it could be, you know, if you have a child, like someone harming your child, it, you know, it could be anything. And that's for you to discover yourself. And I think that that's one, it, it, like I said, it's, it's empathy. And then it helps you empathize with other people. And of course, at the end of the day, I know that we all have a choice. And so I'm not literally saying, yes, it, we have the capacity to become murderers and we will. It's like, will I murder anyone in my life? Probably not. <laughs> but like, but it's but it's the thought and the imagination of like if this or if the circumstance were this I could you know I could see maybe and so that's one of my favorite aspects is doing that and um, the self awareness that people gain through going through exercises is one of my favorite things and when and I and they get so excited when they when when the process is demystified which is like you know me saying like this is what actors do. This is what some actors do when they want to get, because they have so many questions of like, well, what, how do they play a character? And, 
you know, and, and so they like, they like hearing the different ways that people do it. And they also like going through the exercises so that they see what it's like. Yeah. No. Like, wow. And they, and they have a greater respect for it. Yeah. And it, it also goes to the idea that, you know, one of my favorite concepts in, in modern acting training is, you know, scrap this idea of like, you're playing a character and the character is only limited to these three moods or these three behaviors. Like we all play characters in our day-to-day lives. We all are different people depending on the context and depending on who you're talking to and Mm -hmm. so forth. So, you know, that again, that demystification of that aspect of it. And especially now with eight zillion TV shows and streaming shows and movies and everything else, there's roles for literally every type of person that exists. Um, yes. We need actors to be able to play them. So it's it's really remarkable. Yeah. 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 Cool. And so does that mean that these days um, you do not have any day job outside of all these things, outside of your teaching and your all these things that are related in some way to, to acting and stuff, that you're able to, guess, to make your living fully from those? Yeah, I get. I mean, I guess I considered the teaching my day job, but... Right, that's what I'm like saying. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I guess I'm, you know, in a way... Because it's because I'm doing drama, because I'm teaching it, I'm, I'm directing my kids in Alice in Wonderland. Be, uh, because of that, I guess you could call, like, you know, you can consider that I am making my living doing in the art right now. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Absolutely, yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. Uh, oh, and it's not cool. a lot. I mean, I made I made a fact. I I made that choice, and I yeah. said I would rather. I have much more fulfillment, and I feel my mental health is improved because I'm taking a pay cut and working at a nonprofit like this rather than, you know, like basically what I make in a week there is what I can make in one or two nights at a restaurant. Oh yes. Believe me. Yeah. I know all about this. (laughs) So so it's a big sacrifice, but I, but I found that, you know, right now, like, you know, I'm just at the beginning, like I just graduated from grad school last year. Um, not at the beginning. I mean, I, I was in New York and then I went to grad school, but I, it kind of feels like a new beginning and that I just trust that things are going to develop and grow and that you have to, you know, start by like not having a lot of money and then you, you, you keep meeting new people, you keep establishing a reputation and that hopefully different things take off. Like I'm really hoping that this, this thing that I'm doing with Airbnb experiences will maybe take off and like I, I would, into more of like an, like I want to be like an independent consultant or being brought in for workshops. I mean, that's something that I would love. And, and also, you know, like be able to do something like that while I'm still pursuing acting. Like I, I'm very fortunate. I do have an acting gig that I booked that starts in June and that, you know, I mean, so all of these, if, if you can, if you can keep the, the money, if you can keep doing something that you like, that keeps you going and keeps you in the arts and, and take the pay cut and just like, you know, live really, you know, well within your means, it can, it can be worth it until you reach a point that you can't. And I'm still open to that. Like maybe I won't be able to, maybe this won't be sustainable 
my for a long time. Surely it can't be, but I have to at least try. Absolutely. And this is another topic that's come up on the podcast a lot. And of course, you know, one of the, the particular difficulties is being in New York City, where just general cost of living, even at the lowest level, is, is <laughs> quite high. Um, but yeah. we should touch on something you just mentioned that again, when we, and we'll have you back for a part two, where we actually go through your whole <laughs> your whole background and training and everything. No, because I, I mean, if you'll if you if you'll if you're willing yeah. to come back, um, but but just to get into it a little bit, because you do have an interesting uh, one, which is, you know, as you mentioned, you 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 were in New York being an actor for a while before you left to go back to yeah. an MFA, right? And, um, how would you, you know, tell us about a little bit about that journey. In other words, how you were doing as an actor here before you decided to go to leave and go get an MFA elsewhere and, and why you felt you needed to do that. It's a great question. I, I did. Okay. I did a lot of glorified community theater. Right. <laughs> I was like, oh, I booked a gig. I booked something in New York. And like any New York theater experience is good, but it also was like, okay, I, you know, you, you're, you gotta like pay your dues, so to speak. And, <laughs> and, um, I, I got involved with, um, you know, I was, I was doing like some independent theater and continuing to take different classes here and there, like continuing to, to, to grow and, then I fast forward, I had a session at one-on-one, which is where they, you know, one of these places where they can actors connect with people in the industry, you pay to meet them. And I had a session with an agent and somebody, uh, a coach had kind of prepped me with some questions to ask the agent. And one of the questions I was prepped to ask was, how can I get what what do you suggest is I could do to really get involved, get into the regional theater circuit, which is what I want to do. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's important to go into those things if you're going to pay for it and not just say, okay, I'm looking for a presentation. Like, have some really, you know, have some really specific questions that are not necessarily related to having representation. And I, I went in and I asked her that and she looked at me and she said, I'm going to stop you right there. Go to grad school. And I was like, what? I didn't even know at that point that that was like a thing that actors did. And she said, just believe me, it'll change your life. And it was the best advice. This was Ann Kelly, um, Mm -hmm. by the way, Mm -hmm. if anyone knows who that agent is, she's got, she, um, she used to work for another, uh, company. Now she's gone into on, on her own. um, and it was the best advice I, ever, I was ever given because then I like really took it to heart and I took it and I started to look into it and I asked people. And so that I auditioned in during audition season, which is from January to February. I didn't get into any my first year, but that was because I didn't cast my net wide enough. Mm-hmm. I just auditioned for like the big ones like Juilliard, Yale, um, USD, University of San Diego, um, 
with the, or the old globe, the one that's affiliated with the old globe there. And, um, then the next year came around and I was like, okay, I think I want to, do I want to try this again? Yeah, I think I do. And I cast my net a lot wider. I auditioned for more schools. I also went to something called, um, Erda's, which is a big convention where like a bunch of schools are and you like you, it's a timed audition. You go in and then you get like called back at the, it's kind of like straw hat or up does, but for graduate school. Yep. And that was where I eventually got recruited. And I, my mentors and my coaches who were getting me ready, they all say, Hey, like it doesn't matter how many callbacks you get. All it takes is one right. and to accept you. And I got a, a few callbacks, not that many. Some people had like, you know, Oh my gosh, 10 schools calling back. And I had like two or three. Yeah. And I had one. It was pretty, I had one that gave me, like, that accepted me, and that was in Ohio, Ohio University. And it ended up, it was a huge leap of faith. I had never been to Athens, Ohio. I didn't know if I was going to like it. And I get there, and it was, like, the greatest experience I'd ever had. I mean, the training was so appropriate for me. And that's, if there's any advice that I can give to anyone who's, like, considering any kind of training program, whether it's an MFA or a conservatory here in New York is that you have to find a place that you are going to connect with. There's so many different ways to jump into studying acting. As you know, you are an actor and oftentimes, especially like getting recruited for grad school, it's not how good of an actor you are. It's about what is, you know, are they going to jive with us? Are they, do we feel like they're going to mold? Are they going to, are they going to be, are they going to be open to what we're teaching? And like, I thought that they did such a good job in recruiting me because it was so, it was such a match. It really was a match. It was exactly, I mean, it worked for me and I loved it. Well, that's a really important point. I haven't heard it put that way before. So that's, that's great. And you know, really, that's that's great. (laughs) And you know, the whole topic of acting training in general and, MFA training is another big subtopic of this podcast. It's yep. something I'm fascinated by, and uh, we'll definitely get into it uh, again when you <laughs> when we have you back. Yeah, but, and um, I will, and I will, I will quickly say that I did not, I do not have a BFA in acting, and that mm-hmm. was another contributing thing. Which mm-hmm. is, some people who have BFAs still get MFAs, but I did not have a BFA. Sure, and mm-hmm. that was another reason, another another really good reason why I did want to go get an MFA because um, it does it can really help link you into the professional world in a way that it hadn't maybe 20 years ago right and and oh, the other thing I was going to say too is um, you know the fact that that casting director said or that agent said that to you um, is another demonstrative thing that's important you know a lot of agents and casting directors, you know, say how important training is and they look for that on your resume and they talk to you about it. And again, it's it's this idea that acting uh can be trained and and it's not um in in a sense it's no different from any other skill or any other occupation. Exactly. You know, it needs to be taken seriously and, and people do often need training. Um, yes. shouldn't, uh, think that you just have this natural talent and you don't need any training for some people that may be true, but even with that training can help. So, um, mm-hmm. 
you know, the whole training, like I said, it's important. And uh, like I said, we will talk more about it. Um, but here's a question for you, though, which is, <coughs> excuse me, uh, you just said about how you didn't have a BFA and so forth. Here's my question, though. If you could go back and knowing what you know now, would you have gone to grad school right after college, or do you think that the years you did spend in New York acting before you went back for your MFA helped you be better prepared for that MFA training? Great question. Absolutely. I think that being in New York first was really beneficial, okay. especially because I already went in knowing, you know, knowing some things and being humbled by the grind of it here. There's, you know, everybody has a different path and everybody has different struggles. And I know that like, if it's not that you shouldn't, but like, if you go straight from a, an undergraduate program into an MFA program and you haven't really been in the business yet, what the, there are certain, it can be wonderful or there can be challenges like, like, uh, well, I should say it can be wonderful and there can be challenges like, uh, adjusting to the realities after school is done and being, you know, in the, in the market and wow, I can't like, it's going to be months before I do a show. If I do a show, right. Whereas like, if you've been in school, all those years, like you're constantly doing shows, you're constantly working, you know, constantly training. Yes. And then that also comes to a halt when you get out. And so that can be challenging. And even just like, you know, the, the, the maturity that you gain from just like living life and being out on your own, whether you're in New York or not is, is beneficial. And, um, sometimes especially and like if you haven't been out there yet and it, it can feel really d discouraging when you're not, when you're going in and auditioning or don't have access to auditions. And you're not being able to work because it feels like, well, what's wrong with me? And like I said, being out here after a while, it humbles you and you realize, okay, it's not about me. There's so many other factors. And that can really help before entering a grad school program because one, you really appreciate the time you're there. And two, you just, uh, not that you wouldn't if you haven't been out in the world, but you know, there, there's just, there's just, you know, there's, there's, it goes both ways. There's different sides to it. And I don't think I would have done it any other way. I think that the life experience I had being here was really important. And I was, and also like I was the right age. I mean, everybody matures at different rates. And I think that the age that I was, which was, I was 27 when I entered the program mm -hmm. or 28, it was like, it was like a really good age to be going through that type of in-depth, intense, deeper level of training. Because uh, I yeah. was a certain, I had a certain maturity that I gained in in approaching 30 that some people have when they're 19. Right. It just depends. And some people, and some people don't get it till they're 50 or never get it. But anyway. Right. Uh -huh. Right. And there were and I, and I was not the oldest in my class. I mean, I had people in their late 30s yeah. in the class. And so it's, it's pretty, it's, it's wonderful. And it really, you know, I went from being told, oh, acting is a young person's business. But I think that that's like maybe with more of this, which still is a myth, maybe with more of this musical theater dancer thing. Yeah, that's ridiculous. But, <laughs> but it's not, it's absolutely not true. I mean, 
it's uh, the the more life experience and the more age you have, the more the more understanding, the more your brain develops, and that you're able to comprehend and go to certain places and understand scenes and plays. Like I just went and saw Danny in the Deep Blue Sea a couple weeks ago, and I was like, wow, if I had seen this like five years ago, I don't know if I would have understood it. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, and again, so you know. <laughs> I managed to to be an actor and and be seen as a decent one, I think, uh, all through school and and in small theater, like similar to what you were describing in my twenties and stuff. But I I eventually realized not only that I was feeling disconnected from the whole thing, but looking back, I went, "Did I really have any idea what I was doing? I don't know." <laughs> And, you know, Sanford Meisner said it takes 20 years to even learn to be an actor. So, yeah, I think, you know, mm-hmm. personal maturity and, and self-awareness and, and you know, getting rid of those, the, the angst and the ego stuff and all the things that tend to play into it when you're young and whatever can, can be a huge, uh, huge factor. So, anyway, yes, I completely oh, understand yeah. what and, you're saying. And but, even, and even like at, when I was finishing my program, they, the teachers were all like, well, the train, first the training, just because you've gone through this program doesn't mean that like, okay, you're a fully formed actor now. It's going to take time. Like, yes, now you have more tools and you're stronger than when you came in, but it's going to take some time for this stuff to drop. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, this is a good, good, uh, good time yeah. to uh, <laughs> sort of, sort of say to be continued. Um, and again, yeah. I hope you'll come back and we can actually go through the whole rest of your background and your whole story properly. Um, but uh, I've had a great time talking to you. And Me too. Uh, good, thank you. And um, obviously, we'll put all the links and info about the show as well as your Airbnb and everything else. And and uh, if we don't do this again before next weekend, good luck with the show. I will. I will try to make it. I got to see what I'm doing, uh, but I would love to uh, to come if I can. Oh, but, that's um, wonderful! Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, we'll post all this. But do you want to also share any other personal uh, social media, like a website or Instagram or anything like that? Um. Sure. Oh, you don't have to. I, I just don't know what you have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I ha- um, so, so I'm Simple Math Show. All one word. Simple Math Show on Instagram and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I also have a personal Instagram, which is Lisa Danielle Book. Mm-hmm. B-U-C-H. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the, the sim- SimpleMathShow.com is the show website. Yeah. And um, and then I have an actor website, which I probably need to continue updating. Um, and I d- haven't bought a domain yet because, like, I don't know. It's just one of those things. Um, Lisa Daniel Book dot Weebly dot com. You know, I looked at it. It's it's a good website. It's a good website. Yeah, I really just gotta go ahead and buy the domain. Like, I just haven't done it. <laughs> keeping sheep <laughs> no it's just pragmatic anyway um so we will post all of that stuff in the episode notes um and if anybody wants to reach me about the podcast for any reason it's just uh craft business life podcast that's all one word craft business life podcast at gmail.com 
So, Lisa, we will get you back for a part two. But until then, thank you again so much. And uh, thanks, everybody, thank for... Yeah, and thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, till next time, bye-bye.